Happy December, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast, Grab It Quick News. Only one more episode left until season two is over. We are getting closer and closer to Christmas, and for some of us, the last week of November was so much fun. We ate, we had a really good time, and now we're going into December where it's decking the halls with holly mistletoe kisses and chestnuts roasting on an open fire so i want to go ahead and say for those of you who are just tuning in this is season two of grab it bizarre sex news so i want to give a big thank you to everyone who is listening and a huge shout out to my friends which is code for friends and fans who are writing me all right so let's get started gentle reminder if you're not 18 or older you should not be listening to this without your parents consent let's get it in So this time around, I am only going to be reporting on a story because this is a story that I feel is close to the majority of everyone's heart. Um, This story was published November 12th of 2018 and is by Tara Hyel. And the story is about sibling abuse. And the headlines of the story is sibling abuse is more common than domestic abuse and child abuse combined. The reason that I'm sharing this story with you guys is I know that family time gets here and we all get triggered, but sometimes we don't know why we get triggered. And I think sometimes it's because we have a lot of unresolved issues with our siblings and with our parents. So let me just go ahead and read this, okay? So this is reporting from the AAPL annual meeting in Austin, Texas. It says that sibling violence is the most common form of family violence. It is more prevalent than child abuse and domestic abuse combined, according to new research. A review of the literature shows that it occurs in anywhere from 42% to 80 to 90% of families, according to an abstract by Peter S. Martin, MD, MPH of the University of Buffalo, New York. Nearly 50% of siblings engaged in severe violence in the past year, um, though emotional aggression is more common than physical abuse, Dr. Martin shared at the annual meeting, both perpetrators and victims are at risk for poor outcome. He lists distress, low self-esteem, developmental delays, depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance abuse, eating disorders, suicide Um, suicide, sometimes reaching into your adulthood. These symptoms typically can be as severe as those experienced by victims of peer bullying. He also writes that males that are involved in sibling violence tend to show more aggression and delinquencies while females experience more difficulties with psychological adjustments. Sibling violence is also a predictor for college dating violence. So siblings, whether they're biological, half, step, adoptive, foster, or even fictive like a chosen family, 
spend more time with each other than anyone else growing up. So those relationships provide a companionship, support, and opportunities for play and engagement against an adversary. But they also remain unique from other family relationships. Healthy sibling relationships are linked to increased social competence, independence, self-control, companionship, general life skills, support, and overall social cognitive and emotional growth. Dr. Martin also noted that in his abstract. But on the flip side, unhealthy sibling relationships are associated with developing negative externalizing and internalizing behaviors, low self-esteem and anxiety. Yet, despite the prevalence of sibling aggression and the commonness of having a sibling in general, studying sibling violence is challenging because neither the academic research nor the legal realms have a standardized definition for that. So to better understand this phenomenon, Dr. Martin conducted a literature review using Medline, Web of Sciences, PsycInfo, and Google Scholar. He identified 158 articles from peer-reviewed journals or textbooks. Dr. Martin described sibling rivalry and sibling aggression and abuse separately, though they overlap occurs most commonly sibling rivalry conflict over something the other sibling wants or a lack of balance between them generally stems from resentment related to birth order and competition common sources include favoritism preferential treatment that one child perceives a parent to grant the other sibling problems with sharing possessions and quote-unquote fair or quote-unquote even division of household chores usually the biggest problem is an impaired sibling relationship dr martin wrote but the experience can contribute to low self-esteem in adulthood if if individuals believe themselves to be their parents less favorite child and sibling rivalry often can develop into sibling abuse sibling aggression often is unrecognized with poor measures of prevalence frequently relying on recall from college students yet when paired with peer violence sibling violence increases the likelihood of worse mental health outcomes dr martin finds further youth who fight with their siblings are two and a half times more likely to fight with their peers the frequency of sibling violence is highest before age nine but its severity peaks in adolescence, Dr. Martin writes. Clinicians evaluating someone as a perpetrator or a victim of sibling violence need to consider perception, intention, and severity in the assessments. Psychological aggression is often a precursor to physical aggression and often more damaging. Older siblings are more likely to be the aggressor and males and females are equally likely to be victims and perpetrators of less severe abuse. But the presence of a male child increases the likelihood of violence between siblings, Dr. Martin finds, and males are more likely to be perpetrators of more severe abuse with one exception. Females are more likely to be perpetrators of sexual abuse. Although sexual abuse often is excluded from discussion of sibling violence, it is most common form of familial sexual abuse. Many psychological schools of thought can be used to explore causes from a theoretical perspective, but the list of interacting factors is long. It can include factors related to the parent-child relationship as well as individuals and the family as a whole. Among the parent-child factors Dr. Martin lists are parental differential treatment, particularly by dads, active and direct judgmental comparison by parents, negative and conflictual parent-child relationships, lack of parent reinforcement of 
pro-social behavior, polarized definitions of good and bad children, and rejecting or over-controlling moms. Other factors include coercive parenting, inadequate parental supervision, parental child abuse, parental approval of physical aggression between siblings, and lack of acknowledging of a child's concerns. In terms of the family unit, sibling violence is linked to domestic partner violence, marital conflict, poor family cohesion, living with a stepfamily, and lack of family resources or lack of clear and consistent family rules, Dr. Martin finds. While a perpetuator's lack of empathy, low self-esteem, and aggressive temperament are all risk factors for sibling violence, protective factors include greater warmth in family relationships. Sibling murder accounts for 1% of all homicide arrests and 8 to 10% of all family murders. The majority of these, which is about 75%, are the brothers who killed their brothers. The remaining quarter include, in decreasing prevalence, brothers killing sisters, sisters killing brothers, and sisters killing sisters. Though no evidence-based treatment exists for sibling violence, prevention strategies might include a secondary prevention, including family and individual approaches, primary prevention with parenting programs for those at risk to abuse, such as successful parenting, systemic training of, of effective parenting, and parent effectiveness training. Clinicians also have the options to modify existing tools, address sibling conflict through mediation, work to improve all family members' communication skills, and establish rules for appropriate behaviors. Other treatment approaches may include a structured family therapy, a task-centered approach, utilizing social learning theories, or nonviolent resistance. So what do you do if your child is involved in sibling domestic violence. So you need a plan for safety. Initially, parents or guardians may be unaware that sibling abuse is occurring in their home. One of their children might have complained about a sibling's behavior, but the parents or guardian may not have realized the magnitude of the situation or didn't possess the awareness that went beyond normal sibling rivalry. During the conceptualization phase, the counselor works with the client and family to increase this awareness. With this knowledge, the family can start putting a safety plan in place. It is important for counselors to work with their child clients to create plans that ensure they are safe and being properly supervised in the home. As counselors, we may be working with multiple family members throughout the process. Our work may include counseling the sibling victim, sibling perpetrator, and non-targeted siblings, as well as consulting with parents or guardians. It is also critical for all members of the family to have input on the safety plan and for the counselor to ensure that they understand their role in the plan. If it is determined that the sibling abuse is occurring during a certain time of day or in a particular place, the counselor should address this in the plan. For instance, if the sibling per perpetrator shares a room with the victim, the counselor should expose and explore with the family how this might be escalating the problem and create an unsafe and unsupervised environment. Part of the safety plan might include setting aside a space in the home where the sibling perpetuator is not allowed to go, thus ensuring that the victim has a safe zone. In addition, if whip weapons such as belts, knives, or other objects have been used to inflict sibling abuse, removing or restricting access to these objects is another element up to address in the safety plan. 
choosing interventions. Once the family is able to conceptualize the sibling abuse that has been occurring and has a safety plan, the counselor can also work with the family to implement additional interventions. Sometimes simply providing a greater level of awareness of the sibling abuse and establishing safety boundaries within the home might put an end to the abuse, making these additional interventions unnecessary. However, this will more likely be the case if no other forms of family violence are present and if the sibling abuse occurred was milder in nature. In instances in which infamilial family violence may occur or exist or the sibling abuse is more severe, it is important for the counselor to address the long-term impact of sibling abuse on the child victim, the sibling perpetrator, and the non-targeting siblings of the family. Counselors can look at interventions that might help young children or adolescents break this cycle of abuse. There are no evidence-based programs for sibling abuse at this time, but however, one way for counselors to help clients is to explore evidence-based programs that have proved effective in working with children and abuse, including trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy, game-based cognitive behavior therapy, and play therapy. In addition, counselors may want to recommend some parenting programs aimed at preventing child abuse and neglect, such as the Incredible Years Parents Training Program, Safe Care, and Project 12 Ways. There are several excellent resources for counselors as well as parents who want to learn about the ways to address and intervene with sibling abuse. So I have listed them here, which is there's a book called Sibling Abuse Trauma, Assessment and Intervention, Strategies for Children, Families, and Adults. It is by John V. Caffaro, C-A-F-F-A-R-O, and Allison Con Caffaro. It was written in 1998. We also have a book called Sibling Aggression, Assessment and Treatment by Jonathan Caspi in 2012. We have Sibling Abuse, The Hidden Physical, Emotional, and Sexual Trauma, written by Vernon R. Way, W-I-E-H-E in 1997. We also have our last book, which will be What Parents Need to Know About Sibling Abuse, Breaking the Cycle of Violence, which is also by Mr. Vernon R. Weeb, W-I-E-H-E. The opinions expressed in the statements in this article appearing on this should not be assumed to represent the opinions of me or the policies of the American Counseling Association. Now it's time for the second part of my podcast. I believe I'm only answering three letters today. So let's get started. My first one is from a male in New York. He says, Dear Jessica, do you have any advice for me visiting my family for Christmas? My parents get a little out of control and usually a fist fight breaks out. Is there any advice on how I should handle that? It would be much needed. (laughs) Well, hey, shout out to New York. And first off, I want to say you are one of the bravest people I know Um, to know that your parents are going to get a little out of control and a fistfight break out every holiday season. And for you to come back shows that not only are you in control and have really strong willpower, but it also shows that you have a good heart and that you actually love your family. So what I would say is, just stay positive. 
stay as positive as you absolutely can because you never know. This year could be the year. You also have been probably hanging out with your parents forever, right? Because they're your parents. So you know when their triggers are going to start. I'm sure you know when mom hits that third drink, some shit's about to get real, right? Or if dad says that one line and his voice gets higher, (laughs) you know, shit's about to get real. So I would say just make sure that you are aware of your surroundings and that you have an exit strategy. So it needs to be, well, if mom's, if mom is on that fifth drink and I know it's time, then I think I need to leave. And you can always time holiday fights. Usually holiday fights happen after everyone's eaten, everyone's gotten kind of full off that liquor, everybody's having a good time, and usually that's when it happens. So you may just want to time it, right? You may, instead of hanging out all day, you may want to go, you know, exchange your gifts, you know, Merry Christmas, so nice to see you, so nice to see you, exchange those pleasantries, and then leave. Do not feel guilty about leaving a toxic situation. Everybody in the holidays is dreading staying in a toxic situation. So you don't have to. But if you want to be the respectful, nice, sweet son that you sound like you are, go visit. Have a good time. Kiss your parents' faces. Show them as much love as you can get. You know, give them. And then you get out of there. (laughs) You know what I mean? You get out of there. Because again, they're your parents. You know when they're going to be triggered, right? You know as soon, you know when you hear your mama say a certain word or your daddy say a certain word, you're like, oh shit, it's time to go. So listen to yourself. Listen to your gut and listen to your heart because you don't have to stay in that toxic situation. When you were a young kid, yeah, you had to listen to mom get drunk and you had to watch dad fist fight. But you, sir, are a grown ass man. You have your own vehicle, hopefully. And if you don't, again, make a good exit strategy. So that means you need to either rent a car. If you have a car, then you're straight. So make sure that you have everything lined up the way that it needs to. So when that shit goes down, you can bounce. Thank you so much for the letter. Our second letter is from a female in California. She writes, Dear Jessica, I am a sex worker. Everyone in my family knows I am a sex worker. They can be a little shady sometimes. I am visiting them for this holiday season. Do you have any advice for me? Well, my first advice to you is don't ever let the things your family say to you affect who you are. Because you know yourself and you know that whatever they're saying is shade, it's salt, it's not true. It's the first thing. Um, Also, I would say keep your conversation G-rated, keep your conversation PG-rated. I think a lot of people, when they know that you are a sex worker, they automatically begin to project what they think you do if they were the sex worker. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody... Everybody's opinion is actually a reflection of themselves. So when someone tells me, oh, you a porn star, you a whore. 
So I automatically know, you know, I'm not like that. So I automatically have to go through my mind and go, well, you know, that's probably what they think if they became a porn star is that they would be a whore, right? So you always have to remember that people project an awful lot when they start speaking their opinions about someone else. So you want to not take anything they say personally and just... If you need to do the the jinx monsoon, water off a duck's back, water off a duck's back, water off a duck's back, then you say that mantra to yourself because you're a duck, your wings are waterproof, and all their shit talk is water, and you let it roll off your back, and you keep swimming, right? So that's really what this is about. Holiday season is about spreading joy and love and positive vibes. And sometimes we don't get that in return. But if you can discern from the bullshit that they say and, you know, hey, it's my family. If you can come to grips with that's just how your family handles those issues, then you can do pretty good. And another thing, don't just visit with that family. As a sex worker, we make our own family. We make our own friends. We make our own way most of the time. So have a Christmas dinner with your family. And like I said, keep it PG, keep it G, laugh at all their boring civilian jokes <laughs> because we both know those civilian jokes are boring. You know, be nice, help mama with the turkey, help daddy pull out the beer or the scotch or whatever they got going on. Be cordial, be nice, keep it PG. You know what I'm saying? Just be classy, be cool, be calm and collected. Don't let them trigger you because guarantee they're going to do that because, hey, I want to see the sex worker entertain me. And I, so I'm going to trigger her. Don't let them ever, ever steal your peace of mind and, and joy. And that's a big thing with self-mastery is being able to control yourself and to be calm in a situation where you otherwise would not be. And unfortunately, Christmas time is one of those times where you're like, if this bitch says one more fucking thing to me, I'm going to come out of a bag on her. Don't do it. Again, classy, composed. We got this water off a duck's back. So again, have Christmas dinner with you, with that family, then have a Christmas dinner with your sex worker family. If you can't get to Christmas dinner, then start a sex worker group chat and you guys become a support system for the holidays. And hey, I just wanted to let you guys know I'm thinking of you and thinking of you and hey, I'm thinking about you too. And if you guys can get together and have a dinner, do it by all means. But don't ever let nobody make you feel ashamed of your hustle. You know what I'm saying? If they not paying your bills, pay them bitches no mind, right? So I want you to go. I want you to have a great time with your family, okay? Merry Christmas and thank you so much for the letter. Our last and final letter is from a male who lives in Ohio. He writes, Dear Jessica, is stalking an old crush's IG page weird? Or does it mean you still have feelings for that person? <laughs> well, thank you for this letter, male in Ohio. Do I think stalking an old crush's IG page is weird? You know, social media has changed that dynamic of stalking. And I mean, what do we consider stalking? If you are visiting that person's page more than you're visiting your girlfriend's page, yes, then you kind of went over it. If you are visiting um, 
their page more than your page, you got a problem, right? So usually the rule of thumb is no one really knows why you're stalking that page but you. Sometimes people, your ex people, maybe, you know, you never got over that crush and now you're just stalking them to see if they're still single. You know what I mean? If they're still single, you're going to slide in those DMs. Sometimes you're stalking an old crush because they were so darn creative. You just want to see what the hell they got going on. And sometimes that happens. And sometimes you stalking them because they got so much fucking swag. Why you got so much swag on IG, baby? You just want to look, you know what I mean? But if, if it is getting to a point where you're stalking them, you're not reaching out and saying hi, you're not doing anything but going, looking through the comments and seeing, trying to look in the background, seeing, well, I saw that shoe. That ain't her shoe. And that's the same blanket that I saw on the post of November in 2016. You may want to really rethink what you're doing because a stalking can turn into an obsession and an obsession can turn into a police charge, Right. So let's make sure that when we use the word stalk, quote unquote, we mean that and we're using it in a loose term, like I'm always on this person's page. Because if it's any of those other things that I said, where it's on that level of severity, you're visiting that page more than your girlfriend, you're visiting that page more than um, your page, and you're not commenting on anything, you're not hitting the like button, you're not hitting the subscribe button, you're just, just there, you may want to block that person. You may want to because unfortunately we're in a society where we look at other people's and we start trying to live vicariously through their Instagram page. Like, oh my God, that person, oh, I saw her Christmas tree and I want her Christmas tree or, oh, she be twerking her ass and I want a, a girl to twerk her ass like that. And, and then it becomes a problem with the relationship that we have. If you're stalking someone to that point where you're visiting them more than your girlfriend's page, your girlfriend is going to notice that. She may not say, I know you stalking this bitch's page, but the fact that you're not liking her Instagram and you're not talking about, babe, your Instagram is great. Da 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 da. Because let's be real, social media is a big part of relationships right now. And the majority of people who are on social media you know, you want your boyfriend to like your page or take that pic and you want your girlfriend to like your page and take your pic and boost you. And if you're not doing that for your girlfriend, nine times out of 10, she knows you're doing it for someone else or you have a secret crush on someone else. So you may want to really get this in check. I'd say this, if you can block them for 90 days, and you are okay with blocking them and you're not freaked out like oh my god what are they doing 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 then you don't have a problem but if you can't block them for for 24 hours without i gotta see i gotta see i gotta see you have a problem and you need to keep them blocked okay thank you so much for the letter Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks again for rocking with Team Grab It. Remember, be good or be good at it. Until next time, bye.